Chapter One of the Story of the Atlantic Cable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Story of the Atlantic Cable by Sir Charles Bright. Part Two The Pioneer Line. Chapter One Evolution of Atlantic Telegraphy in America and England. As has been shown in the introductory chapter, the efforts of the early projectors of submarine telegraphy were at first confined to connecting countries divided only by narrow seas, or establishing communication between points on the same seaboard. The next step forward, with which we are here immediately concerned, was the spanning of the Atlantic Ocean between Europe and America. It was aptly characterized at the time as the great feat of the century. By its means the people of the two continents were to speak together in a few moments, though separated by a vast ocean. This was the first venture in transoceanic telegraphy. There was no applicable data to go upon, for the vast difference between laying short cable lengths across rivers, bays, etc., in shallow water, and that of laying a long length of cable in depths of over two miles across an open ocean will be easily recognized, at any rate, by the sailor and the engineer. The wires of the Magnetic Telegraph Company had already been carried to various points on the west and south coast of Ireland, and in 1852 Mr. F. N. Gisborne, a very able English engineer, obtained an exclusive concession for connecting St. John's, Newfoundland, with Cape Ray in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, by an overhead telegraph line. The idea was to tap steamers coming from London to Cape Race at St. John's, and pass messages between that point and Cape Breton on the other side of the Gulf, by carrier pigeons. A few miles of cables were made in England and laid between Port Edward Island and New Brunswick. Mr. Gisborne then surveyed the route for the land line across Newfoundland, and had erected some forty miles of it, when the work was stopped for want of funds. When in New York in 1854, Gisborne was introduced to Mr. Cyrus West Field, a retired merchant, who became enthusiastic on the subject, and formed a small but strong syndicate for the practical realization of Gisborne's scheme. A cable eighty-five miles in length was made in England to be laid between Cape Breton and Newfoundland, but after forty miles had been paid out, rough weather ensued, and the undertaking had to be abandoned. A fresh installment was, however, sent out in 1856, and successfully laid across the Gulf, thus connecting St. John's with Canada and the American lines. The conductor of this line, instead of being a single solid wire, was for the first time composed of several small wires laid up together in strand form, with a view to avoiding a flaw in any single wire stopping the conductivity, besides affording increased mechanical pliability. The feasibility of uniting two vast systems of telegraphy had engaged the consideration of some of those most prominently associated with electric telegraphy on both sides of the Atlantic. It had been already shown that cables could be successfully laid and maintained in comparatively moderate depths in the Mediterranean, Black Sea, etc., 
but the nearest points between the British Isles and Newfoundland are nearly two thousand miles apart. The greatest length of submarine line which had hitherto been effectively submerged, a hundred and ten miles, formed but an insignificant portion of such an enormous distance, and that, too, involving a depth of nearly three miles for a large proportion of the way, instead of about three hundred fathoms. Apart from the engineering difficulties entailed by this vast distance and depth, the question was then undetermined as to the possibility of conveying electric currents through such a length in an unbroken circuit, and at a speed that would enable messages to be passed rapidly enough in succession to prove remunerative. Various researches had been made, by Faraday among others, with a view to determining the law in relation to the velocity of electricity through a conducting wire. The retarding effect of the insulating covering had already been discovered, but the exact formula for the working speed of cables of definite proportions and lengths was not correctly arrived at till some years later. The similarity in principle of a cable to a laden jar was first pointed out by Mr. Edward Brailsford Bright in the course of a paper read before the British Association in 1854. He showed that on charging a gutta-percha-covered wire, the insulating material tended to absorb and retain a part of the charge, and to hold back as a static charge some of the electricity flowing as current through the conductor, just as the charge of opposite potential induced on the outside plate of a laden jar statically holds the primary charge on the inner plate until either are neutralized. The brothers Edward and Charles Bright made a series of extensive experiments on long lengths of underground wires, and these investigations were supplemented later by Mr. Edward Orange Wildman Whitehouse, formerly a medical practitioner, who became electrician to the first Atlantic cable. Mr. Whitehouse was a man of very high intellectual and scientific attainments, and a most ingenious and painstaking experimenter. The retardation of electric current through an insulated wire due to induction, a phenomenon practically unknown with bare aerial wires suspended on posts, and of no consequence with quite short cables, was overcome by using a succession of opposite currents. By this means the latter or retarded portion of each current was wiped out by the opposite current immediately following it, and thus a series of electric waves could be made to traverse the cable one after the other, several being in the act of passing onward at different points along the conductor at the same time. The Messrs. Bright devised a special key for signaling through long cables, embodied with a patent for transmitting these alternating currents from the battery, and this was followed by others to effect the same object, one by Professor Thompson, now Lord Kelvin, who became electrical adviser to the enterprise. A certain degree of knowledge regarding the nature of the bed of the Atlantic Ocean was now available, for in the summer of 1856 a series of soundings had been taken by Lieutenant O. H. Berryman, U.S.N., from U.S.N. Arctic, and also independently by Commander Joseph Damon, R.N., H.M.S. Cyclops, showing what was called a gently undulating plateau, extending the whole distance between Ireland and British North America. These depths, averaging about two and a half miles, 
compared favorably with those that had presented themselves farther southward the ground was found to shoal gradually on the newfoundland side but rose more rapidly toward the irish shore the soundings were taken with the ingenious apparatus of lieutenant j m brooke u s n which formed the prototype of all similar deep-sea sounding tubes of the present day in this at the extremity of the sounding line a light iron rod hollowed at its lower end passed loosely through a hole in the centre of a cannon-ball weight which is fastened to the line by a couple of links on the bottom being touched the links reverse position owing to the weight being taken off and the cannon-ball or plummet being set free remains on the ground leaving the tube only to be drawn up with the line in the act of grounding however the open end of the tube presses into the bottom a specimen of which is consequently obtained unless it be rock or coral an oozy bottom was found throughout the soundings the specimens brought up to the surface were shown under the microscope to consist of the tiny shells of animalculae the indestructible outside skeletons of the animal organisms known as diatomaceae and globigerinae foraminiferae largely composed of carbonate of lime no sand or gravel was found on the ocean bed from which it was deduced that no currents or other disturbing elements existed at those depths for otherwise these frail shells would have been rubbed to pieces as it was they came up entire without a sign of abrasion the plateau or ridge which was found to extend for some four hundred miles in breadth was considered a veritable feather-bed for a cable indeed in his subsequent report to the united states navy lieutenant m f maury u s n spoke of this shallow platform or table-land as having been apparently placed for the express purpose of holding the wires of a submarine telegraph and of keeping them out of harm's way lieutenant maury concluded his report as follows i do not however pretend to consider the question as to the possibility of finding a time calm enough the sea smooth enough a wire long enough or a ship big enough to lay a coil of wire sixteen hundred miles in length these words form amusing reading nowadays as do also the suggestions of telegraph plateaus furnished by providence as a resting-place for the atlantic cable the plateau idea was true only to the extent that the bed of the ocean in these regions afforded a smooth surface as compared to the alpine character prevailing north and south of it these soundings at something like fifty-mile intervals were not however originally undertaken with the atlantic cable expressly in view indeed for many years until experience pointed to the absolute necessity no special surveys were made previous to the laying of a cable formation of the atlantic telegraph company eighteen fifty six cyrus field besides being a man of sanguine temperament and intense business energy also possessed shrewdness and foresight thus he immediately recognized the value of gisborne's concessions and determined to turn them to the fullest account his extraordinary acumen told him that by improving on the exclusive landing rights already obtained in america he would place himself in the strongest possible position in regard to the big notion of an atlantic cable 
no sooner had he made up his mind to this effect than he set to work to accomplish the idea and very soon exclusive rights were obtained in his name for practically every important point in connection with the landing of an atlantic cable on british north american territory gisborne having entirely dropped out of the negotiations the period for these rights was fifty years besides which he obtained various grants of land thus it will be seen he had assured himself a very strong position in connection with any project for an atlantic cable without having had in the words of his brother henry field any experience in the business of laying a submarine telegraph mr field's syndicate was about this time registered as the new york newfoundland and london telegraph company which was now capable of debarring competition for a considerable period at any rate armed with this apparent monopoly mr field went over to england empowered by his associates to deal with the exclusive concession possessed by the above company for the coast of newfoundland and other rights in nova scotia etc he had already been over before in connection with the gulf of st lawrence cable he had on that occasion met mr john watkins brett who thereupon interested himself financially in the newfoundland company on his second mission in july eighteen fifty six he at once put himself into communication with mr afterward sir charles bright who was known to be already making various preparations with a view to an atlantic cable in connection with the magnetic telegraph system on september twenty sixth eighteen fifty six an agreement was entered into between brett bright and field in the following terms their signatures being reproduced as they appear at the foot of the document mutually and on equal terms we engage to exert ourselves for the purpose of forming a company for establishing and working of electric telegraphic communication between newfoundland and ireland such company to be called the atlantic telegraph company or by such other name as the parties hereto shall jointly agree upon john watkins brett projector Charles Tiltson Bright, projector and engineer, Cyrus Westfield, projector. Let us now see what the united efforts of these three projectors had before them. The ground had already been to some extent cleared by their individual exertions when working independently, as well as in other ways. Bright, and also White House, had already proved the feasibility of signaling through such a length of insulated wire as that involved in an Atlantic line. The soundings that had been recently taken showed that the depth was only unfavorable in the sense of being something far, but uniformly, greater than that in which any cable had previously been submerged. Finally, the favorable nature of the landing rights secured by Field on the other side went a long way toward insuring against competition, apart from the actual permission. There yet remained then the necessity of obtaining a. government recognition, and if possible government subsidies, and b. the confidence and pecuniary support of the moneyed mercantile class besides which a suitable form of cable had to be designed and manufactured as well as all the necessary apparatus for the laying of the same as a result of considerable discussion the two governments concerned eventually came to recognize the importance and feasibility of this undertaking for linking together the two great english-speaking nations and the benefits it would confer upon humanity 
both the british and united states governments gave a subsidy in return for free transmission of their messages with priority over others this however only jointly amounted to eight per cent of the capital and was payable only while the cable worked the atlantic telegraph company was registered on october twentieth eighteen fifty six and the three hundred fifty pounds decided on as the necessary capital for the work was then sought and obtained in an absolutely unprecedented fashion there was no promotion money no prospectus was published no advertisements no brokers and no commissions neither was there at that time any board of directors or executive officers the election of a board was reserved for a meeting of the shareholders to be held after allotment by the provisional committee consisting of the subscribers to the memorandum of association any remuneration to the projectors was left wholly dependent on and subsequent to the shareholders profits being over ten per cent per annum after which the projectors were to divide the surplus the campaign was opened in liverpool the headquarters of the magnetic company the greater proportion of whose shareholders were business men merchants and shipowners mainly hailing from liverpool manchester glasgow and london who appreciated the value of america being connected telegraphically with great britain and europe through their irish lines the first meeting of the atlantic company was convened for november twelfth eighteen fifty six at the underwriters rooms in the liverpool exchange this was called together by means of a small circular on a half sheet of note-paper issued by mr e b bright manager of the magnetic company the result was a crowded gathering composed of the wealth enterprise and influence of liverpool and other important business and manufacturing centres similar meetings were also held in manchester and glasgow and a public subscription list was opened at the magnetic company's office of each town in the course of a few days the entire capital was raised by the issue of three hundred and fifty shares of one thousand pounds each chiefly taken up by the shareholders of the magnetic company mr cyrus field had reserved seventy five thousand pounds for american subscription for which he signed but his confidence in his compatriots turned out to be greatly misplaced the result has been thus recounted by his brother he cyrus field thought that one-fourth of the stock should be held in this country the united states and he did not doubt from the eagerness with which three-fourths had been taken in england that the remainder would at once be subscribed in america in point of fact it was only after much trouble that subscribers were obtained in the states for a total of twenty-seven shares or less than one-twelfth of the total capital thus notwithstanding their professed enthusiasm the faith of the americans in the project proved to be strictly limited at any rate they did not rise to the occasion indeed the undertaking was very much an affair of the magnetic telegraph company the officers of which led the shareholders to take a lively interest from the first in the atlantic project as forming the nucleus of a great extension of their business the first meeting of shareholders took place on december ninth eighteen fifty six when a board of directors was elected this included the late george peabody samuel gurney t h brooking t a hankey c m afterwards sir curtis lampson and sir william brown of liverpool 
no less than nine representing the interests of different towns being also directors of the magnetic company including mr j w brett the first chairman was sir william brown subsequently succeeded by the right honorable james stuart wortley m p two names may be further specifically referred to as destined in different ways to have the greatest possible influence in the subsequent development of submarine telegraphy mr afterward sir john pender who was then a magnetic director afterward took a leading part in the vast extensions that have followed to the mediterranean india china australasia the cape and brazil besides several of the subsequent atlantic lines up to the time of his death he was chairman of something like a dozen more or less allied cable companies representing some thirty million pounds of capital and mainly organized through his foresight and business ability then again professor william thompson of glasgow university was a tower of scientific strength on the board he had been from the outset an ardent believer in the atlantic line his acquisition as a director was destined to prove of vast importance in influencing the development of transoceanic communication for his subsequent experiments on the cable during eighteen fifty seven fifty eight led up to his invention of the mirror galvanometer and signaling instrument whereby the most attenuated currents of electricity which are incapable of producing visible signals on other telegraphic apparatus are so magnified by the use of a reflected beam of light as to afford signals readily legible a full description of this invention will be found in its proper place further on mr afterwards sir charles bright was appointed engineer-in-chief with mr wildman whitehouse who had become closely associated with the project as electrician while mr cyrus field became general manager it must not be supposed that because the capital was raised without any great difficulty or because the project had far-seeing supporters that there was any lack of croakers on the contrary the prejudice against the line as a mad scheme ran perhaps even higher than is the case of most great and novel undertakings the critics were many and with our present knowledge it is difficult to recognize that many of the assertions and suggestions emanated from men of science as well as from eminent engineers and sailors who we should say nowadays ought to have known better for example the late professor sir g b airy f r s astronomer royal announced to the world one that it was a mathematical impossibility to submerge a cable in safety at so great a depth and two that if it were possible no signals could be transmitted through so great a length from the very outset of the project the engineer-in-chief as soon as appointed had to deal with wild and undeveloped criticisms and suggestions partly from inventors who desired to reap personal benefit by the scheme and amateurs in the art generally all of which appear singularly ludicrous nowadays the fallacy most frequently introduced was perhaps that the cable would be suspended in the water at a certain depth naturally the pressure increases with the depth on all sides of a cable or anything else in its descent through the sea but as practically everything on earth is more compressible than water 
it is obvious that the iron wire yarn gutta percha and copper conductor forming the cable must be more and more compressed as they descend thus the cable constantly increases its density or specific gravity in going down while the equal bulk of the water surrounding it continues to have practically speaking very nearly the same specific gravity as at the surface without this valuable property of water the hydraulic press would not exist the strange blunder here described was participated in by some of the most distinguished naval men as an instance even at a comparatively recent period captain marriott r n the famous nautical author writes of the sea what a mine of wealth must lie buried in its sands what riches lie entangled among its rocks or remain suspended in its unfathomable gulf where the compressed fluid is equal in gravity to that which it encircles to obviate this non-existent difficulty it was gravely proposed to festoon the cable across at a given maximum depth between buoys and floats or even parachutes at which ships might call hook on and talk telegraphically to shore others again proposed to apply gummed cotton to the outside of the cable in connection with the above burying system the idea was that the gum or glue would gradually dissolve and so let the cable down quietly as an example of the crude notions prevailing in the mind of one gentleman with a proposed invention to whom was shown an inch specimen of the cable he remarked now i understand how you stow it away on board you cut it up into bits beforehand and then join up the pieces as you lay some again absolutely went so far as to take out patents for converting the laying vessel into a huge factory with a view to making the cable on board in one continuous length and submerging it during the process finally one naval expert assured the company that no other machinery for paying out was necessary than a handspike to stop the egress of the cable end of chapter one recording by maria casper